All of us are on a complicated journey of faith, pursuing truth and deeper knowledge of God. But how do we know we're doing it right? Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing, and it can be a painful and difficult journey, and far too often we are not given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson, and one of my best friends, Marty Frederick, and I have agreed to join each other in creating exactly that kind of space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to look honestly at the issues and questions plaguing the Christian church today and to genuinely seek out what it means to live like Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. We believe that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but perhaps one of its greatest allies. We think that the Christian life is more about asking the right questions than it is about finding the answers. And we believe we are being called to continually ask those questions, renewing our minds and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining us on that journey. All right, well, welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, my name is Josh Patterson, and with me today from his super secret lair, the Fortress of Solitude, is uh, my co-host, Marty Frederick. Marty, how's it going, man? Oh, it's going well, man. I'm just uh, doing my my side job, um, building guitar pedals with my friend, and so uh, today's a, today's been a good day, and it's an interesting week this week, Josh. It's Thanksgiving week. It's Monday before Thanksgiving, so... I thought I just wanted to ask you, Josh, name name one thing that someone wouldn't expect you to say. Can't be the churchy answer. One one thing that you're thankful for. Because <laughs> that's the churchy, the churchy that, answer. It's the churchy question, but it, you can't give a churchy answer. Yeah. Um, hmm. Well, I'm thankful for many things. Um, I think one thing, though, is I am thankful for my roommates. <laughs> <laughs> so we have we have two we have a couple that Noel and I we have a guest room and we opened up our house to them. Um, good friend of mine, uh, been friends with him. You know Brandon uh, yeah. since like third grade, and they've been living with us. And this started pre-COVID, and it's just been nice to have them around because I'm such a relational person, and so it's helped with the whole lockdown thing. Like, nice. There's other people around too to kind of get that that um, aspect out of me. What about nice. uh, what about yourself? I think I think mine would have to be good coffee. I'm thankful for good coffee. Just fair. Not not good coffee from Starbucks or something like good coffee. Like Like, yeah, Marty (laughs) is a coffee snob. Well, then in that case, I can say good beer. Yes, I have. I have a batch that's coming off today that I need to bottle. Oh man, fermenting for a little over two weeks now, so I have to bottle it up. I'll have to take a drive to try some. Might as well. (laughs) Sweet. (laughs) All right. Well, Marty, we do have a guest with us today, so perhaps we should go ahead and introduce him, bring him into the conversation. So listeners, today with us, we have Dr. David Gushy. David, how are you today? I'm good, man. How are you? Doing good. Hanging yeah, in there. A little bit tired. Had a crazy day yesterday, but uh, I'm excited for this conversation. So we should be good. David, um, before we go any further, we we have a question that we ask every guest. Um, it's an important question to us. David, who's your favorite ice hockey team? Uh, I would say the Philadelphia Flyers. Okay. Um, because uh, I I had three years in Philly, and that was that was the first time I, I cared about hockey. 
And they were, I mean, and the, the fans in Philadelphia were just rabid about, about hockey, about yeah. all their sports, really. So they had a pretty good, they had a pretty good team during those years. It was the late, uh, uh, early nineties, early nineties. So anyway, yeah, I say the Philadelphia Flyers, even though I only lived there three years and haven't been, haven't been back much, but yeah, that's my answer. Nice. Nice. I'm, I'm from the Chicago area. So the Blackhawks are my team. And uh, I remember that was when, you know, playing the Flyers in the, uh, in the Stanley cup, one of those years that was in the two thousands when the, when the Blackhawks had their dynasty, that, that was, that was one of the tougher, one of the tougher series we had to play. So, um, I can tell you that I've never been asked about my favorite ice hockey team. So you, uh, that, that tested my uh, my sharpness. I'm ready now. I'm ready for whatever you yeah, guys. Perfect. Get, we're just trying to make get you know get your mind activated and oh, yeah, that's help, cool. yeah, yeah, help wean you into the conversation. Yeah, yeah. Well, perhaps a question that you've been asked many times before, uh, as you probably have a good answer for, is just tell us a little bit about yourself. What's your faith upbringing? Who are you? What what kind of things do you do? Um. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on your podcast. It's 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 an honor. Um, I uh grew up in the Catholic church in Northern Virginia, where I was raised. Um, and, um, it, it didn't really, uh, didn't really do much for me at the time for reasons I've explored in some of my writing. But then, um, uh, I wandered into a Southern Baptist church through a girlfriend relationship when I was 16 years old. And, um, and I had a, a really dramatic conversion experience in that Southern Baptist church. And it really, really took, you know, uh, I, I, I got baptized, uh, joined the church, ended up being president of the youth group within a month, which was really silly. Um, uh, just did everything, was, was in there every time the doors were open. And so, so Southern Baptist, ever, at, at that point, I was all in with the Southern Baptist from like the late 70s, all the way through the Southern Baptist Convention controversy. I went to Southern Baptist Seminary and became ordained. Uh, but then I felt, while I was a seminary, I felt hard for the discipline of Christian ethics. And so I went on and got a PhD at Union Seminary in New York. But then for my first job, I went back to Southern Baptist Seminary in 1993. And it was, it was a mess. Three years there. Um, in uh, 2007, I moved over to Mercer, where I am now. Mercer is a more progressive Baptist school. Kind of left the Southern Baptist behind. And... Um, one other little piece of the story is beginning that time in Philadelphia in the early 90s, I picked up the evangelical label. I picked it up through Ron Sider, who was my boss there, and wrote, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. Yeah, you've got If Jesus is Lord right on your shelf. That's right. Yeah. Uh, so he was a key mentor in my life. He employed me for three years when I was a doctoral student. And, um, and I, I really appreciated his peace and justice evangelicalism. That worked for me. But uh, I grew disillusioned with evangelicalism as an identity um, gradually over time, but really decisively uh, within the last 10 years. So I'm a post-evangelical now who goes to a Baptist church that is progressive. Um, I also go to a Catholic church with my wife. And, um, and I'm in that post-evangelical kind of uh, wilderness trying to figure out uh, how to maybe have something to say in that world. Wow, yeah, you see, you've you've kind of been in a lot of different circles. That's that's really great. Um, I I also grew up Catholic, um, but I found um, 
a conversion experience for myself in a more of like an evangelical free church, but you know, similar, similar sort of story. Um, and then David, just, just one other sort of bio question that we've been asking lately, um, just to get to know people a little bit, our podcast is called rethinking faith. Um, what would you say is the most important aspect of faith that you've had to rethink? Um, well, probably it was the LGBT inclusion question and that I rethought in the book, Changing Our Mind. Um, but you know, more broadly, I, it would be being able to see that Christian failure does not mean Jesus has failed. To kind of detach uh, the integrity of my faith from disappointment with Christians and Christianity. Yeah, that's huge. That's that's a big one. That's a good one too. Thank you for that. And so um, today we're excited because we have you here to talk about, uh, and you, you mentioned it, your most recent work, which is called After Evangelicalism, The Path to a New Christianity. And so for starters, why did you write this book? What compelled you to do so? And who is this book for? Always a good question. Always two good questions. Um, I would say that I have been on a journey with that concept of evangelicalism since, I guess, since I met the Southern Baptist and got converted in 1978, but, but more self-consciously since I started working with Ron Sider in 1990. At that point, I was looking for, okay, Clearly, I'm not a conservative Southern Baptist, okay? I, I, I figured that out by 1990. But what am I? I went to Union Seminary in New York, which is a liberal-slash-radical Protestant school, and I didn't feel quite at home there either. And so I was trying to figure out, okay, I'm not Catholic. I'm not Southern Baptist, really not, not totally comfortable there. I'm not Reformed. I'm not Mennonite. I'm not Episcopalian. What am I? Ron said, I think you are a, a peace and justice evangelical. And he kind of initiated me into that identity. He's a, he's a Mennonite Canadian evangelical. And uh, with all the kind of justice commitments that I, that I have. So for the period from about 1990 until 2015, I pretty much did my work under the label evangelical. If you look at my bio... You know, uh, evangelical this and evangelical that, this committee, that committee, this book, that book. Um, but after I wrote Changing Our Mind in 2014, I got basically unceremoniously booted out of the evangelical community just about as much as you can in that world, right? Disinvited from this and exiled from that and told I was going to hell and, you know, all that stuff. Um, and that that led me to embark on a gradual soul searching process about whether that identity, what that meant and, and whether I really belonged and, and did a whole lot more digging in the history of evangelicalism and American evangelicalism and so on. So change your mind was 2014. Then I wrote a memoir called still Christian, which came out in 2017, uh, which told the, my spiritual journey, um, including, essentially regrouping after having my world shattered after I wrote Changing Our Mind. Um, but then this book 
is basically a theological reconstruction effort. It's like, if evangelicalism, is it true that it's not really viable for, for me or for a lot of us anymore? Yes, okay. Why not? So I do some of that. And then um, how do we rethink the things that have proven to be problematic? So it's a, I, I, you can easily say it. I can say it in an elevator pitch. This is a book for post-evangelicals or recovering evangelicals who are lost and disillusioned and wondering whether there is anything left of Jesus and church for them. Jesus theology and church. And so it's for them. Sweet. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and we see, yeah, because there's definitely this, like, mass exodus of, of people, especially people around my age, I'm 26 years old, um, and younger, just this complete disillusionment like you're talking about, and you, and you touched on that in the book, and that's actually a lot of our listeners fall into that category as well. So, listeners, this is for you. That's cool. I thought so. And, you know, in the book I talk about, well, I use the image of, you can use different kind of spatial images, but the cover of the book is a maze. And I use the image of like uh, people who got stuck somewhere in the maze, um, like a picture of a maze that you can't get out of, you know? So here's somebody who gets stuck. They can't find their way out. They got stuck over sexuality. They got stuck over a biblical inerrancy or over the whole idea that to be an evangelical, you have to be a Republican or even a Trumpist, right? Or um, over, you can't, can't believe in climate change, that's a liberal thing or... Uh, or whatever, and, and so I, I kind of um, pinpoint those areas where people had their faith shaken or shattered and try to provide some different approaches to help people get out of the maze and find their way ahead to Jesus. Yeah, that's that's really good, um, and that's essentially what we do here on this podcast is help people find their way to Jesus or find their way back to Jesus. That's kind of our our goal. Um, so we've been using this term in your book, obviously, you know, it's a big part of the, it's the, it's the active term in the title. Um, can you define what evangelicalism is? Josh and I were talking about this before, before we, we logged on with you today. And, um, I feel like it's, there's a, there's obviously these huge negative connotations, but then also there's also this group of people that, don't believe that that is a negative term. So can, can you define what you're referring to when you say evangelicalism? You know, a lot of the fun for me in writing the book was digging around in that question all over again. Um, because you can define evangelicalism in different ways. If you, if you go with the big-time historians like, uh, like Mark Knoll and Frank Marsden and Joel Carpenter and people like that, um, evangelicalism is usually defined theologically like those people who have a version of the Protestant faith emphasizing centrality of Scripture, uh, Jesus is the only way to salvation, um, centrality of the cross, uh, evangelistic mandate, things like that. Um, and that. And then you can define evangelicalism histori historically as um, those movements in the history of the church, you, sometimes it has begun with Luther, that have attempted to reform the church and bring it back to the gospel. Um, but I'm kind of deconstructing all of that and saying, you know what evangelicalism is? For me, for this book, it is the label that a group of fundamentalists chose in the 1940s 
to describe their own reform movement within fundamentalism um, in an effort to split the gap between mainline liberalism on the left and fundamentalism on their right, to rebrand themselves as uh, ironic, smart, culturally engaged, Bible-believing Protestants. And they wanted to do that because they thought fundamentalism was a bad brand. It was already damaged by the 40s, right? Um, and to take control of or leadership of American Protestant witness for their group, uh, out uh, defeating the liberals of, you know, Reinhold Niebuhr, Harry Emerson, Fosdick, Union Seminary, Riverside Church, National Council of Churches, that whole world. But also to to wrestle control from the hardline fundamentalists, you know, like Bob Jones or, or you know the people who who wouldn't cooperate with anybody, who were mainly angry, bitter right wingers. And so, in the '40s, this ambitious group of men um, decided to rebrand as well. Some it's funny. There's I say in the book. So at some point, they were called neo fundamentalists. Then they were called neo-evangelical. Then they were just called evangelical. Um, and that's the label that stuck. And they formed all these institutions like Christianity Day Magazine and National Association of Evangelicals. And they also um, had all these parachurch organizations like um, Campus Crusade and Youth for Christ and all of this. Um, they were institution builders. They were, they were great marketers. Um, and they came to define that word um, in that way. So last thing I would say is evangelicalism in America became a subculture, a subculture um, of recognizable names, brands, schools, books, authors, music, um, bookstores, parachurch organizations, trinkets of all types, a massive subculture. And from even our, well, I know about you, you guys have been a part of that evangelical subculture educationally. Do you notice in the beginning of the book, I have my little, you know, you're an evangelical if you can check these, uh, these boxes. Did you get all, all of them? So for myself, there were only, there was only one, two of them that I didn't check out of the 25. Uh -huh. yep. <laughs> so 23 out of 25 is pretty good. And actually I remember um, when I first started reading this, uh, I was reading that section right just before dinner time. And I sat down at the table with my wife and with that couple that lives with us. <laughs> and um, I said, Hey, I want to read you this. And you guys tell me yes or no. Do you know these things? And everybody was within the 20 plus category. <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah, See, that's the subculture. If you go to a Catholic church and, and, and open the book to that page and hand them that, they would have no idea what that is, right? Or if you go to the local Episcopal church, they would have no idea. So we are all veterans of that subculture. In fact, it can be described as a consumer subculture, a massive one, billion, multi-billion dollar uh, consumer subculture. Um, but so evangelicalism is that whole world. And it could you can you can uh, slice it in different ways depending on what kind of thing you're wanting to talk about. But I'm talking about that world in America in particular. Yeah, and I, and I was just you know thinking through these th these ideas here. <laughs> I mean, uh, so I be I first became a, 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 a like a believer in 1999, 
um, which was, you know, dead set in the, you know, DC talk, um, have your Jesus bumper sticker, you know, where your what would Jesus do bracelet time, time frame. And uh, I remember, you know, Stephen Curtis Chapman had a song about, you know, you could have this bumper sticker on your car, but, but what about the change? He was, he was referring to that, like, what about your change and who you, you become? And so I guess, you know, what's interesting to me is that I was telling Josh earlier, my youth group had about 80 to 100 kids in it when I was in high school. And every one of them, I, I believe, um, because this was talked about, we, what we, we received what I would refer to as a healthy understanding of what it meant to be an evangelical, just that, you know, you, uh, the word evangelical means that people need to know about Jesus. <laughs> and that was sort of the end of that. And there wasn't really this, you know, get this cool t-shirt or, you know, or, or have this cool sticker on your, on your backpack or on your car or whatever, like that didn't really infiltrate where we were. Um, but at the same time, I, you, I look back and I think about all the unhealthiness of what it meant to be an evangelical. I mean, I remember being called an evangelical Christian and being like, yeah, that, that's exactly who I am. <laughs> and not feeling like there was anything negative attached to it. Um, but now it's all of a sudden it's, it's received that, like you were talking about earlier, this, there's all of a sudden this, Oh, like if you're an, if, if you're called an evangelical, it's not, it's not meant to be an endearing term anymore. It's, it's, it's meant to be something else. What I think is that, is that um, the brand, and I, I'm using that language because I really think that that word in America began as a rebranding exercise as well as a um, an effort to reform fundamentalism. Though I do say in the book, I'm not sure that that effort to reform fundamentalism actually succeeded. I think they did better rebranding than reforming. Um, but But in the public arena, I think people really began paying attention to so-called evangelical Christians in the 70s when Jimmy Carter was uh, like born again and and then the moral majority there was a lot of talk about evangelicalism as evangelicalism got associated with um, hard right-wing politics the brand began to sour for people who did not like hard right-wing politics um, the purity culture stuff that I talk about in the book that also began to create a fair amount of dissent especially from women and that was more 90s and after, right? Um, sex abuse stuff, toxic masculinity. So you might say that some of the less health elements of some parts of the subculture have come to dominate the public reputation of evangelicalism. And then the Trump phenomenon in the last four years has only made it worse. And so now, whoever rebranded, the people who rebranded fundamentalism as evangelicalism, they're long gone but somebody's going to have to rebrand whatever this is because this isn't working very well either. Not anymore. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so we, I was going to ask you like, Hey, if, you know, if someone was wondering, did I grow up evangelical? How would you help them answer that question? But since you mentioned the, uh, the little test you have there in the beginning, do you mind if I just read those really quick? It's fine. Yeah. Okay, cool. So here you go, guys. So just listeners. So, you know, um, and I mean, I have a feeling that, that most people will <laughs> score in the high 20s here as well. But here it is. So I'm going to name these 25 things and then, you know, just take a mental note if you know what I'm talking about. Lord, I lift your name on high. John Piper. Complementarianism. The 700 Club. The Message. Wheaton College. Azusa Pacific. Moody. Tales, 
Zondervan. God didn't make Adam and Steve. <laughs> that one makes me laugh every time. Sorry. Uh, Christian Zionism. Father Hold Me. Bob Jones. Biblical Inerrancy. I Kiss Dating Goodbye. John MacArthur. Eugene Peterson. Purity Rings. Reparative Therapy. Left Behind. Hell Houses. Tim LaHaye. Tony Evans. And The Rapture. Friends, if you've checked off like any significant amount of those, you indeed have grown up in the evangelical subculture. <laughs> and see, I, I, I only got 16, but I think it's because I didn't pay attention to a lot of times. Like, but I, I mean, I, I mean, when I did that, I was like, okay, like, you know, I mean, I, I know who John Piper is now, but I didn't when I was, when I was growing up, like, I mean, I didn't have a care in the world as to, but yeah, I mean, 16 is still not, you know, three or four. So I'm definitely up there. I had fun with that. I had, I had a number of options. Uh, I played with that a lot. I could have done 50 and uh, it would have been interesting, but that would have been, have been a bit much probably. Yeah. Yeah. And so one thing um, that you mentioned, uh, it was this idea of fundamentalism and within fundamentalism, you have like this very specific approach to scripture. And they say that, you know, evangelicalism is a rebrand of that fundamentalism. And so what role has scripture traditionally played within the evangelical world? And like, what are the issues you see with that? And how can we kind of move forward from there? Um, the... Um here, I see very little difference between fundamentalism and evangelicalism. Um, in fact, as you as you look at as you look at script the scripture issue, you really see the differences are pretty impossible to identify. But basically, um, a very exalted view of the truthfulness, inspiration, and authority of the Bible, and a privileging of the Bible over any other source of knowledge when it comes to anything that really matters. Um, also, a great difficulty in finding a way to integrate um, scripture with modern forms of knowledge like science, um, theory of evolution, or whatever. Um, so, uh, also, the Bible occupies a, a, a kind of a place in the fundamentalist and evangelical subculture that has sometimes been described as a kind of idolatry. Um, bibliolatry is a term people may have heard of. Um, and an exalted um, sense of certainty in an uncertain world. If you want certainty, all you have to do is open the Bible and read and you have certain answers. Um, and so... I argue in the book that inerrancy, the doctrine that the Bible um, is without any error in anything that it teaches, um, goes beyond what can be defended, uh, and it really goes beyond um, what the early church actually claimed about the Bible. Um, and it's all it gets all entangled also with. Um, the authority of specific religious leaders who are who are the ones holding the Bible in the front of the church and saying, God's inerrant word says X. And so I talk a lot about power in the book. Um, you have the Bible, but you also have, as you ratchet up the um, 
inerrancy claims about the Bible, if you combine that with kind of unquestioning submission to pastors and other authorities who hold the, the golden key of interpretation of the Bible, then you, you have a problem in terms of um, the inability to raise questions, especially if they are wrong in their teachings or in their lifestyle. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate that. And um, <clears throat> it's, that's definitely a place that, you know, the biblical inerrancy aspect has been something that uh, we've unpacked here before on the podcast. And it's been always, I'll be honest, maybe a measure of my personal um, evangelicalism past. Uh, that was something that was new to me when we first started unpacking it, that, that it was, that it was, in, that it was questioned, I guess, even that, that, that was even something that was even brought um, to the question. Um and then, David, you say in the book um, that we should abandon fundamentalist evangelical dogmatism, replacing it with Christian humanism. Can you unpack that for us a bit? Yeah. Um, the The book goes into a um, a broad account or discussion of how do we know what we know, All right? Um, where do we go to learn things that can help us make sense of our world and follow Jesus? And so I, I first tried to destabilize the idea of inerrancy while still saying the Bible is a really important, even indispensable resource for Christians, but there are other ways of knowing things. So one aspect of what I end up calling Christian humanism is try to access, we must try to access the best insights of all human learning and knowledge. So a lot of times evangelicalism and especially fundamentalism, positioned itself in opposition to, quote, worldly knowledge. Um, almost like if we didn't generate it in our Bible studies, it was to be looked at with suspicion. And, and so I say instead, we should see ourselves as part of the human community in its quest to understand what is real and true and good, and should be accessing the best of what um, other cultures and various disciplines of the intellectual life have to teach. Um, our way of refracting that information is, is through the lens of Jesus, but the posture is a posture of openness rather than suspicion. Right Now, there are some strands of evangelicalism that have said things like that. You know, the whole all truth is God's truth and we're open to learning and all of that, right? Um, but I would say the majority spirit has been a kind of um, hostile, especially to elites and elite knowledge as the one might get in uh, secular academia. So one thing I mean by Christian humanism is let's take our place among other human beings in attempting to access the grandest treasures of the human intellectual quest. But also that our faith should be about... Um, helping human beings flourish, all human beings. And that just as Jesus said, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly, our construal of our faith should be um, something that, that yields good fruit and better lives and, and more compassion and more justice and more love. And that if our faith delivers the opposite of that, it's the opposite of Christian humanism. It's, you might call it Christian inhumanism. And there's a lot of that out there. Um, 
So concern for human well-being in this life and not just the next. Connectedness to other human beings, a sense of being on a shared quest. Um, a humility appropriate to being human beings who don't know everything. Um, and taking the risk to learn and grow, admit mistakes, and keep, keep at it. Um, and, you know, uh, this worldly, as well as otherworldly concern, where people are suffering... That's where Jesus attended, and that's where we must attend to. So those are some things I mean by Christian humanism. It's not secular humanism, which is a, a face set against God. This is precisely because we love God, we love our fellow human being as well. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and that's so helpful, too. I mean, prior to, to you uh, hopping on this call with us, um, I was talking with Marty, um, about just some of the, the fruits, uh, to use your language or to use biblical language, um, that has stemmed from evangelicalism. And specifically, we're talking about uh, some of the you know more recent scandals that have happened with like Carl Lentz. Um, and it just seems like the, the fruit or like the proof is in the pudding that like bad things are happening. Yeah. We're creating these systems in churches that are producing um, really nasty things. Uh, narcissism and you know moral failures uh, we have a mass exodus <laughs> of so many people walking away from the faith or turning their back on Jesus because they think that that's what they have to do because their experience doesn't line up with what they've been told um, I remember uh, specifically I had just finished preaching and a gentleman approached me uh, with his Bible in, in hand. He had it in a nice, you know, leather cover with the zipper, his name engraved on the front. Um, and he said, Josh, that was a really nice sermon and all. Uh, but I got to tell you, I really don't appreciate how you quoted different authors and theologians in your, your sermon. I was like, oh, you know, why is that? And he said, well, the only book that I read is the Bible. That's the only book that has all the, all the information, all the answers, all the stuff we know. So I don't need to read anything else. It's all right here. And like that breaking free from that, right. To, to get to the epistemological question, the how do we know things um, is so important. I really personally, really appreciated that chapter uh, where you did do the, the destabilizing of inerrancy um, because I think that's, I mean, in my honest, humble opinion, um, once you start reading the Bible and take it seriously, inerrancy kind of just falls away. Um, totally agree. And I say that in the book. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. So it's like, because I take the Bible more seriously and, and kind of try to take it on its own terms. Yeah. That's, that's been super helpful. Um, just well, overall. I mean, think, about it. think about that posture of the guy with the zipper Bible, right? Um, he's saying there is nothing to be learned from any other source. Um, that's a remarkable statement of, of closeness to the God-given human mind and everything that all the gifts the human beings have been able to, um, the creativity, the, the breakthroughs of mind and spirit. It's unbelievable, really. Um, you know, the overall posture of opposition to worldly knowledge, um, I mean, I understand because there's some stuff out there in the world that I disagree with too, but you got to engage it. You got to know what's out there. You got to, we don't need to be afraid. I think the posture of fundamentalism and evangelicalism has often been a posture of fear. And that ends up choking out faith in the long run rather than enhancing it, I think. Yeah, because to me, that's interesting because 
on the one hand, we'll say we'll say something like, um, you know, well, we, we really need to cling and look inward and, you know, and build our faith up. And, you know, Jesus is our number one. And, you know, there's nothing else I need to know. I don't need to learn anything from any other source whatsoever. But then at the same time, we'll celebrate church musicians <laughs> that didn't learn how to play their instrument from reading the Bible. Like they learned that from a teacher, from a, they went to a, they, they may have had lessons, but also a lot of younger church musicians didn't learn from listening to Christian music. They learned from listening to secular music. Um, and I think there's something to be said there, you know, if you're, if you're only willing to look inwards to one source, I mean, we, we will say, we will celebrate the, the gifts that God gives to all of us, but only if it falls within this list of 12 gifts or 13 gifts or whatever, you know. Yeah. Um, but I, I think that I, I think that there are gifts given. I mean, the gift of like the spiritual gift of teaching, you know, do I do I then now want to go read Shane Claiborne talk about beating guns and and rethink my perspective on that? Uh, of course I do. But if I only read the Puritans, <laughs> I might not even get an, an understanding of guns in any way, shape or form in a modern context. So, of course, I mean, just to learn from one person is or from one source is is, is a ridiculous notion. Um, maybe, you know, to back to uh, what we were saying about the scandals and failures in these churches. Um I believe in fresh air and sunlight. I believe in um, uh, accountability, checks and balances, and um, a community together seeking to understand and discern and be the best followers of Jesus that we can be. Authoritarian closed systems are very dangerous. Epistemologically closed, um, closed to questioning, um, one person whose whose word is of godlike power, it corrupts. And um, and whatever structures are supposedly in place, like boards and elders or deacons or whatever, a lot of times it's just failed all the way across. Um, because in the end, authoritarian systems make it very difficult to challenge the actions or teachings of the person in charge of that system. Yeah, absolutely. It's crazy, too, because that's um, so Marty and I, we met working together um, in a non-denominational, which just secretly means Baptist church <laughs> in in uh, southern Florida together. And it was a very unhealthy place. Um, but, you know, that's that's how our friendship started. And we had this experience to get to go to the point with like the board and stuff The whenever there was an issue, the board was like the founding pastor and then like the two um, campus pastors of like the locations, like that was the board. <laughs> so when there was a question or a problem and you had to go to the board, it was just them. Like you, so it's extraordinarily dangerous and the, the trauma and the, you know, the, the um, spiritual violence, emotional violence that has come out of that is, it was, was not great. Um, but one thing too that even more recently um, I've really begun to uh, grow stronger and stronger in my conviction about is this idea that uh, perhaps 
the most important aspect of our spiritual development is how we image God, what we think God is like. Uh, and I mean, even within like uh, neurological studies, we can see that like if you believe in an authoritative, more vindictive kind of God, that's going to reflect on how you raise your children, who you vote for, um, like how you treat other people, your thoughts and beliefs about hell. Like it's all wrapped up in that. Um, where, you know, and then the opposite is true. You know, if you believe in a more loving, nurturing God, then you can guess those things as well. Um, so to that point, uh, and, and to the, the idea that how we image God is extremely important. How have you seen, uh, evangelicalism typically, you know, traditionally imaging God? Um, and what do you think we need to do, uh, moving forward, if anything, in regards to how evangelical of evangelicalism has imaged God. Um, I, I explore that uh, to some extent in uh, two chapters in the book, uh, one that kind of works through the Old Testament and one that works through the story of Jesus. And, um, and I, I think that there is no single evangelical account of God. I do think that there's a pretty powerful strand of, now especially the inscrutable commanding kind of reformed god uh who chooses for salvation and damnation who orchestrates ordains or permits actively permits everything that happens um who is <laughs> who is to the universe kind of like some of these pastors are to their congregations right utterly in control um and, uh, and not to be challenged or questioned um so that God is, is, a, is a significant strand in evangelicalism. Um, and I would say the, the, the resurgence of a kind of a neo-reformed theology around Piper and people like that, I think has been a real problem in recent years. Um, and it's almost always associated with conservative and even reactionary politics. It's striking. Very rarely um, does it yield a politics that cares much about justice, liberation, or social change. Um, in the New Testament chapter, I talk about um, some other kind of variations, like the I talk about Jesus, who is kind of um, my best friend, uh, Jesus, who is the one who teaches me how to be a successful middle-class professional, um, uh, kind of romanticized, sentimentalized Jesuses, you know? Um, so that's kind of out there, especially in some of our music. Um, I try to propose, um, in the Old Testament chapter, I talk a lot about covenant and a God who wants and invites us into a covenant, um, to make this world what God intended it to be. And then Jesus comes bringing the kingdom of God and inviting a community around him, uh, with that, you might call it a radicalized covenantal vision, um, but I actually think that that those chapters, they were fun and challenging for me to write because as, a, as an ethicist, I usually write about things like race and politics and sex, and that's later in the book, right? But here, I, I, I wanted to probe what exactly is our picture of God. I also I should mention that my experience of studying the Holocaust really closely very much affected my, my and it does affect my account of God. Anybody who studies children being murdered at Auschwitz is going to have a hard time 
with a deterministic God who controls everything. And you end up with a theology that, um, at least I do, that heightens human responsibility and the suffering and sorrow of God over what human beings do to one another. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm in that, it, that is one of the, the key aspects for me. So listeners know this about me. I'm very much swim in the worlds of open and relational theology and things exactly like you're talking about the Holocaust um, really kind of pushed me there because I, you know, maybe there's something wrong with me, but I don't think so. I can't stomach a God who, you know, within the deterministic perspective, you know, everything happens. It's a part of God's plan and God created the, you know, the best possible world. So the Holocaust was just something that had to happen that God planned and ordained to have the best possible outcome. And, you know, the, the pastoral part of me kicks in and is like, wait a minute, if I was present in Auschwitz, would I really sit there and tell a mother and her starving children uh, who are, you know, set to be killed that, oh, this is all just God's plan for you. And it's really going to be a better, you know, it's better for everyone else that this happens to you. I'm sorry. It's really shitty for you, but this is God's best possible world. Like I just, I couldn't do it. The problem of evil is essentially what it comes down to for me. And that's why I kind of, you know, tiptoed into open and relational theology and uh, kind of find myself very heavily within the that camp now. Yeah, that that name for for what we're talking about here is is more recent, um, but it's really the older strand of that is. I mean, you might say for me, I call it Holocaust theology in the book because beginning with the Holocaust theology that began to be written uh, after the Holocaust, the the idea of a deterministic God. If, when you study the Holocaust in detail. It's just obscene. It's obscene. So um, the human beings bear fundamental responsibility for what happens here, that we are accountable, that when, when you see factories of death, God is not the author of that. We are. And we are accountable for that. And we are accountable for creating a livable world for all human beings. Um, I, I, I quote one of my professors in the book, um, the Burning Children Test, Irving Greenberg. No statement, he said, Rabbi Greenberg, no statement, theological or otherwise, should be made that would not be credible in the presence of burning children. And he was talking about children who were burned alive at Auschwitz. And I believe that. I believe he's right. Um, so, so, therefore, vast components of what passes for evangelical theology to me are ruled out utterly and completely by that test. Yeah. And the, I, I think that's that's been something that I've been working through too, is we've been talking about, we've had different open relational theolo the, theologians on the show and there are aspects of it that I'm, I'm not, I'm not quite on board with yet, but I mean, the, the idea of something like the Holocaust does does ring as, you know, the person that, you know, grew up evangelical free, worked in a reformed church, worked in this non-denominational church, you know, as a part, it was swam in these circles. And the problem of evil was one of those either, well, that's just God's plan or, oh, I'm so sorry that happened to you. That's just God's plan. <laughs> <laughs> and so there's your range like, right there the whole right. the whole range yeah right and so there's there it's it's definitely that that and sometimes in the reform circles i think sometimes the answer is um 
if you can't figure it out, God's just a mystery. And that's just not something you'll ever figure out. And oftentimes I think that can be challenging for the person that's going through the trauma um, in that moment. Um, And, you know, another aspect of trauma within the church has just been the church in general. A lot of post-evangelicals have been harmed by the church in some way, Uh, whether it be, I mean, there's, I mean, just the wide gamut of anything. Um, In what ways do you know this to be true? And but how can we fix this? I mean, what what can we do to change the church harming people? Um, chapter six in the book is about that. Uh, I mean, really, the whole book is about that. But chapter six is about church options. Um, if I were to give a top ten or or worst ten list of how the church has harmed people, um, it would be. Uh, sex abuse and covering it up, um, toxic masculinity and women being subjugated and mistreated, um, anti-LGBT uh, discrimination and harm, um, making people have to choose between the mainstream modern learning like uh, science and their faith, um, you know, shutting down people uh, from asking questions when they need to ask questions. Um, the book has a whole chapter on the issue of white Christian racism, so race is a big issue. Um, and essentially sending the message in a thousand different ways that if you're not a Republican, you're not a Christian. There's my bottom 10 list or so of, of harm. Uh, and all, and partly in there is authoritarian systems that are not open to challenge. Um, so, I, I in that chapter, I basically say I do believe that people need community, and that Christians, to retain a living faith, need other sisters and brothers to to go through that journey with. Um, and I explore well where where to go to church or to find church. And I, I talk about, you know, some people are are kind of like transitioning evangelical churches into themselves, becoming post-evangelical churches. In other words, some churches themselves make this transition. Um, some exiles and refugees leave evangelical churches and they go to uh, mainline churches. And I talk about some of the mainline options, you know, like the Episcopal Church or the United Methodist Church. And, and some of the good that is to be found there, and also some of the challenges. Some head over in the more traditional direction and look to Eastern Orthodox or Roman Catholic, you know, and say, I want the liturgy, I want the mystery, I want the tradition, and I want to, to just kind of sit here and smell and, and worship, you know? Um, uh, and that's okay, too, you know? Um, some are finding virtual community. Really, the podcast is their community, right? Um, or just friends who get together at, at the pub or, or at the house. Um, my, my main burden as a pastor, and I am a pastor, is to say, find community. It is there to be found. And don't let your faith uh, kind of die out because you're disillusioned by this form of community. The problem is not, I say this, I've heard from a couple people who really appreciated this. The problem is not Christian community the problem is this version of Christian community. So find a different version of Christian community. It's really available, and here are some ways to look for it. 
Yeah, I, I like that. And, you know, one of the things you mentioned is uh, um, keeping people from asking questions. And I remember um, about a year ago, um, and we're talking about Carl Lentz, but about a year ago, uh, Marty Sampson from Hillsong Church was a worship leader there. And actually, as a, as a young um, budding worship leader myself, his songwriting was very inspirational and influential for me. Um, and one of the things that came up was that um, he said Hillsong was not a place where you were allowed to ask questions about your faith if you were already the type of person who was supposed to be a leader, supposed to be, you know, someone that was on stage on Sundays or at their concerts or their events, um, asking questions um, wasn't really, it was, it was deeply frowned upon, but it wasn't ever spoken about as frowned upon. And I think <clears throat> some of the ways that we combat that in a facade like way is we create programs, things like the alpha program, which talk about asking questions but they provide you with the questions that you're supposed to ask without allowing you to think about the questions yourself. Um, and, and I, and I, so part of me wonders if that's an issue as well, like where, where we, we allow the, we, we, we allow an environment that supposes that asking questions is okay, but only if they're the right questions. Hmm. Um, but if you have a question like, well, well, it says here that um, these guys, they, they opened, um, they opened up the tabernacle and they were all struck dead immediately. And that just doesn't seem to make sense to me. Why, why is this the way it is? Oh, well, you know, uh, that, that's just one of those mysteries. It's an Old Testament thing. We don't really get into that. Or, you know, well, don't worry. We're in the new covenant now. You don't need to think about that anymore because that's old. You can just throw that out. You know, it's like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> I was allowed to ask the question, who is Jesus? But I wasn't allowed to ask the question, how come God allowed these people to be slaughtered or how come this happened or how come I'm not. And I'm not saying that there aren't good answers to those questions. I'm saying sometimes people aren't even given the opportunity to ask them, which then poses a significant problem in itself. Yeah. Um, I talk in the book a lot about the Jewish tradition um, and how it is a tradition of in general. I mean, there's fundamentalist Judaism as there is fundamentalist everything else, but but in general, it's a tradition of asking questions and debating, you know, and Rabbi so-and-so asked this and the answer of Rabbi so-and-so was this, but the other rabbi said that. And, but what about that? Um, uh, that is the, is a much better way of dealing with a tradition and a set of texts that are as complex as the Bible. Um, engaging questions safely um, is part of the vision that I'm trying to communicate for sure. Yeah, and that's that's so helpful too cuz the like I know for me that was that was a big problem uh for myself was this lack of ability to ask questions or like if you ask the wrong questions then you get shut down. Um and like I I kind of wish <laughs> growing up that I was told that asking questions was a part of the process, mm -hmm. right? Like that asking questions and wrestling with things and uh it's just a part of what it means to like be a Christian, I guess, to be on a journey of faith. We have to ask questions. Um, and they were always stifled for me. And so now I, I really try to hope, at least I communicate, I, I hope I communicate this clearly with my, my students. I'm a, a high school and young adult pastor. Um, when they ask these difficult questions about, uh, you know, LGBTQ inclusion or about uh, hell or, 
Um, does God really plan everything that happens? Like all this kind of stuff. I really want to try to help my students see here are different ways that Christians have thought about this throughout history. Um, I can share with you my opinion if you would find that helpful. Um, but, you know, here are the options. Now go read, go study, go ask, keep asking questions. That's great. Um, and so for me, it, it, it comes down to, I hope that what I can do is teach students more how to think rather than what to think all the time. Cause I think that's a very healthy uh, kind of approach to things. Although it does uh, land me in some uh, unpopular um, places amongst other youth pastors in my area. Um, they have said some not great things about me. <laughs> yeah. But, I, guess that, I guess that goes with it. Um, you know, what that makes me think of, of this one way to think about ministry is um, we are the current generation of a 2000 year and with the Jewish community, a 4000 year tradition of asking and answering questions. Um, and so our job, you might say, is to help this generation ask and answer the questions in a way that makes sense for them. Um, I, I would nudge it along a little bit to say that there's a kind of a, um, a mainstream range of answers that have generally proven to be uh, most viable, right, or most healthy. And so I think in the end, like, especially if you create an environment where questions are okay, and you communicate humility as in, like, here's my current view, but I'm still thinking about it, then you might sometime be able to say, uh, you know, I actually think that possible answer probably goes beyond what I would think would be okay. But here's why I would here's why I would draw the boundary there. Um, but man, we got to think through these things comprehensively, and kind of when you do that, you discover where the actual edges are, and the edges are okay too. Um, so, but we're mainly finding our way to faithfulness and the way you find your way to faithfulness is to ask the right questions and, and explore it deeply in community. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that ties in nicely to like, there's this idea within, especially within like uh, post-modernism that like, you know, you have your truth, I have my truth, everybody's truth is blah, you know, great, whatever. And there's some, there's some beauty to that. But I think at the end of the day that the, we have to, um, to, to use some like maybe woo woo language, uh, to transcend and include those things. Like there's a, there's a point when you uh, awaken to the reality that there's all these different stories and we need those voices. Uh, but then also, uh, past that you start to get to a point where you realize, but yes, that's true. We should hear these voices, but also there are voices that are better than others. And so I yeah. think that's a, a really important, um, thing to point out. But the only way you really know that is if you do a lot of reading and engage a lot of voices, right? You know, um, and then you can know, okay, here's where, here's where I'm going to land. I know the range now, and I think I fit here, and that's cool. Um, I do think that Christian leaders do have to offer more than questions. We have to be able to offer an account of what we actually believe, but one that is humble and always teachable. Yeah, absolutely. That's good. And so we have we have two more questions for you. Are you good on time? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Just we want to be fair to you. Thanks. Um, yeah. So the the next question we want to point out, and this is something we've touched on uh, on our podcast. We've had um, 
a couple different episodes around this idea. And also we have uh, one coming up uh, that we're recording soon that I'm really excited about, but it's specifically in regards to purity culture and the treatment of the LGBTQ community. Um, both of these things have played a huge role in like the mass exodus away from evangelicalism. Um, so like, but the, the and, and so we've talked about that. We've talked about, you know, why that is and things like that. We've talked about, um, you know, affirming theologies and stuff, but where people always tend to get stuck is like, okay, what's next? If, if we, you know, break down purity culture and then we have the affirming bit, what does a good Christian sexual ethic look like then? That's always where people get hung up. And I think you put forth uh, a, a helpful um, perhaps answer or suggestion uh, to that question, what's next in your book? And so can we just talk about that a little bit? Sure, yeah. That, that sexuality chapter is a pretty good example of, of what I just said, and that I really do offer what we in ethics call a normative account. That is, here is what I think the principle should be and some of the rules that go with it. The, the danger of destabilizing traditional interpretations is that people often can't figure out what's next. They never can land. They're just confused. And that's not too good, right? So my approach is, I call it marital slash covenantal. And I think I use the language of realism a lot in that chapter, kind of covenantal realism. And I've not framed it exactly like that in earlier writings, but pretty close. Um, and so basically, I think that sexuality is good, but also so potent and so emotionally laden and where reproduction is concerned, it involves so many lives that it needs it needs norms around it to prevent chaos and harm. It's not, I just do what I feel like with whoever wants to do it with me. That's not my effort. I think that the here, you know, that the tradition has a wisdom that has been embedded around the concept of marriage, which is I commit my life to you. I make certain promises. You make those promises to me, and we hold ourselves to them, and we ask God to help us. We ask the community to help us. Um, because we know how much is at stake, especially when children come along. Um, and so a covenant is a sacred exchange of promises that binds behavior between two people. Um, and marriage is a covenant. There are other kinds of covenants, too. Um, and so sex... Uh, serious sex, at least, intercourse, belongs within a covenantal structure to protect it and to protect the people involved. Um, now, what the tradition said is that only straight people can make such covenants because it was not able to account for the existence of same-sex attraction or of same-sex orientation. And the only way it could deal with it was to attempt to erase it or deny it or suppress it. Or, you know, gradually over time, the existence of homosexuality was it was ex maybe kind of acknowledged, but the idea is you must be celibate or you must change. Um, and so all I really do in my ethic is it's still fairly traditional. I believe people should be encouraged towards making covenant, and the highest form of covenant is marriage. Um, but that gay people should be invited to make the same kinds of covenant commitments as straight people. And that both should be recognized by the church. So I'm not 
for uh, polyamory or polygamy. Um, I'm not for kind of anything goes or just as long as you consent. Though in the chapter, I do talk about how we have to have rules about that too, right? But that the, the norm is covenantal and marital. And um, that our society is very confused about that. Um, and that the church hasn't helped because we've mainly been beating up LGBT people and saying that's our ethic, right? Um, meanwhile, our, our marriages have been deteriorating and falling apart at the same rate as the culture as a whole. Actually, you know, one of the most beautiful things of the last 10 years to me has been watching really devout gay couples in the church when they're accepted, wanting to get married, last five years, and saying, what you straight people have been treating so casually, we want to treat as sacred. We want to have the chance to make a lifetime marriage. So in an odd sense, devoted gay and lesbian married couples are or can be a source of renewal for marriage in the life of the church. How about that for radical? I love it. That sounds, yeah, I love it. Like the, the whole like countercultural subversive flip there sounds very much like Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you want to know where to look for a source of renewal. Look for those gay couples who, who were told their entire lives that they were evil and dirty and that they could never have a legitimate sexual relationship. Yeah. When they, when they are given a space in which they can actually make a Christian covenant, they take it very seriously. Absolutely. Yeah, that very much has been my experience. I, I mean, I worked in a, a, a church, it was a Methodist church, um, where the uh, the worship pastor was an openly gay man. Um, but also, uh, there were numerous couples within the church um, that were gay and, and married. And just one that, that comes to mind was just this uh, beautiful couple. Uh, they're lesbians. And, um, you know, just thinking about them brings a smile to my face. And uh, their daughter... Um, Danielle is is such a such an awesome person and they're just such a great family and they are a like a backbone of that church yeah. Um, and yeah so absolutely and those those kind of personal experiential things being in relationship uh, with with people like um, with Len and 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 all just really that pushed me over the line so to speak yeah. uh, the experience because so something that obviously you don't know is that I I have two well one gay brother and one brother. My other brother is within the category of, uh, I just love people. I don't care either uh -huh. way. Uh, right. So pansexual, I guess, is, is how he would fall. But um, yeah, so I, 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 appreciated, um, I appreciated that. By the way, you know, what you just articulated about, you have learned from people that you love, your brothers, the, this couple in the church. That's part of what I'm talking about. Um, there's a certain strand of evangelicalism that says it is wrong for you to learn anything from them. They can't teach you anything. Your job is to teach them Romans 1. And you're saying your job is to learn and figure out what Romans 1 and other passages mean in community with them. And that's a, that's a difference that is huge. Yeah. Yeah why we're in this conversation together because i think we agree on the significance of that difference oh absolutely absolutely it's huge and and even to just the the relationship so uh the guy who's the the worship uh director chad um good friend he's been on the podcast before uh 
but what was crazy was <clears throat> like going to a service on Sunday morning and then being led in worship uh, by Chad and his team. There was zero denying that God was active and present in that moment. Like Chad is gifted. Chad was put on this earth to lead people in worship. Marty knows what I'm talking about because he's he's done some some worship stuff with Chad before. And like for me to deny the presence of the Holy Spirit of God, whatever language you want to put to it, in what Chad was doing on Sunday mornings, I would have to lie, deny my experience, deny the reality. Um, God very much actively works in and through Chad when he leads worship. And like, I don't want to stand in God's way of something like that. So that, that was another huge teacher for me. And that my relationship with Chad, um, my friendship with Chad is, is um, a huge aspect uh, in my life, even today. Uh, as to where I fall within these these kind of conversations. You know, there's a whole community of evangelicals or maybe on their way out evangelicals who are torn to the gut on the LGBT issue because they know that about people like Chad or their own version of Chad, but they can't quite get there intellectually because of how they've been taught to read the Bible. And so they're just conflicted to the core. And part of my, I guess, what I could say is my God-given calling over the last decade or so has been to help them make, to help them get there. Um, and I think we're actually gradually winning that, but still there's an awful lot of casualties, an awful lot of excluded people and a lot of harm. Yeah. Well, and I, I, I recall back to my, my first full-time ministry experience, I was invited to um, come and share my testimony at a Bible study uh, it was called Men Finishing Strong. So it was for the se- a group of seniors uh, in the community. It was a small community, so it was multiple churches that came together. And um, uh, when I finished sharing my story, um, just said, you know, hey, does anyone have any questions, anything that you want to get to know about me? And the only question I was asked uh, was by a guy who was probably in his upper 60s or mid-70s. And he said, say that um, you minister to two guys uh, in the youth group now and in a few years uh, they come to you and they say that they're gay and they are getting married to each other and they want you to do the ceremony um would you do the ceremony and uh, i looked at him and i said um the church has done a really bad job at loving gay people and he and that's all i said and he said, well, you haven't answered my question. And I said, yes, I have. The church hasn't done a very good job of loving gay people. And um, I don't think that your question is um, being posed because you genuinely want to know the answer. <laughs> and, um, and and people were, he was floored that I said that, but there was a couple men in the room that actually clapped because they, they, they just appreciated that. I mean, it, to me, it's a breath of fresh air to welcome in this idea um, that they're not homosexuality is in, in men and women that are, that are a part of that community. They aren't, they don't exist to be pushed out of the church. Like that's, that's not the purpose. Like and that's not our job as ministers and as Christians to say, Hey, let, let's figure out as many ways as possible to push them away from Jesus. It's the opposite. And it's and and the reality is, is it's the same for everybody. It's never been, you know, Hey, like I, I, I don't recall Jesus ever saying to someone, Hey, 
um, when you go to this town, try to figure out as many ways as possible to make them uninterested in what I have to say. <laughs> like it was always the opposite, you know, and, and then in the book of Acts, you know, Peter, does, Paul, none of them say anything about, you know, we want to go to this place so that they don't want to know who Jesus is. Or, you know, on the day of Pentecost, we want to do things that make people uninterested in Jesus. Like that's never been the goal. So I don't understand why it all of a sudden becomes the goal. Um in our, in our day and age. Um, but you know, uh, David, I guess just to, um, to wrap things up, um, I, I, I think it'd be interesting to go over just briefly the nine categories of post evangelicals that you offer. Um, I think this will help listeners kind of put some helpful language to their spiritual journey. Josh and I kind of, um, discussed through this a little bit before you came on. Um, and it was hard for me to pinpoint exactly where I fall. Um, but I, I, I was able to kind of come up with a, a mixture of maybe two, but I, I'd love to hear your perspective on those categories. Um, well, first of all, I want to credit a Canadian friend of mine named Isaiah Ritzman, who uh, I think is in his 20s, who was dialoguing with me about the ideas in the book. And he, he said, I have a typology I've developed. Would you look at it? And so this is his. But uh, And he said he would be honored if it could be in the book. And I've, I've gotten some good feedback on this typology. So Isaiah says there are three main categories, the still evangelicals, the still Christians, and the still people, okay? And then each has, I think he was doing this because I have nine chapters in my book in three parts. He decided to organize it in three by three. It's all, it's all biblical. It's all about the numbers, right? Okay, three by three, and it's the perfect number. I don't know, anyway. So still evangelicals, 1.1, the in denial type. They say they're no longer evangelical, but they probably still are. 1.2, the Anabaptist, Reformed, or Methodist type. They are retreating into the identity of another Protestant tradition. 1.3, the irresistibly hungover type. They engaged progressive evangelicalism like that, but and still would be there, but, but they're really alienated from mainstream evangelicalism. Okay? But still Christians are kind of people who are really more clearly post-evangelical. And Isaiah gives us the high church type, Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, the liberal Protestant type, and the exiles. So they they don't have a home. They know they're still Christians, but they haven't been able to find a church home. And then the still people type, 3.1, the Jesus rocks types. Um, they still identify with Jesus, but they can't do church anymore. The no looking back type, they're agnostic, atheist, or they join another church. And then the sad one, the traumatized type, um, they're mainly traumatized. The main thing to know about them is that they are people who are traumatized by evangelicalism. So where, where would you all place yourselves? Yeah, yeah Mar I, go first, Marty. Yeah, I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't distinguish myself between whether I feel like I have a foot in both camps um, between the irresistibly hungover type and the liberal Protestant type. Okay. Um, while also I feel like still desiring to cling to the, the off chance that being an evangelical is okay. <laughs> 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 because it's, because I, I, I attend a church, it's an assemblies of God church. So they, they fall within the camp. I don't know that AG calls themselves mainline denomination as much as you know catholic would or um you know maybe even like you know uh 
I don't, I don't know, you know, or Baptist, Southern Baptist. I don't know that they would, AG would say their mainline denomination, but I definitely, I definitely see within what is done on Sundays and what is done throughout the week as a, as an outreach geared ministry as a, as, as a desire to reach the community around them for Jesus. Um, which, which to be honest to me is the, is the quote unquote, you know, healthy definition of what it means to, to be an evangelical, you know, where, where you're wanting people to know who Jesus is. Yeah. And that was what I was first taught. I mean, and so if one could possibly salvage evangelicalism, it would be essentially meaning evangelistic. I want people to know Jesus, period. Yeah. Yeah, right. And so I, I think I found myself between the irresistibly hungover type, the liberal Protestant type, but then also maybe clinging to the idea that it's okay to call myself an evangelical based on that definition. So I don't know. It's it's it, I'm kind of in a weird space. All right. What about you, Joe? Yeah. So uh, for myself, I'd also I'd want to touch on too. I'm definitely somewhere in between uh, liberal Protestant and the exiles. Um, but then there's also there is a a touch of the, the traumatized bit within there. Um, I do have, uh, um, or I experience whatever the right language is, uh, both anxiety and depression, um, from experiences that I've had within the, um, evangelical community. Um, yeah. So that, um, I have an amazing spiritual director though. Her name is, uh, Sid Holsquaw. Um, perhaps you've heard of Jeff Holsclaw. That is her husband. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Sid is my spiritual director. Um, I call her my therapist, but she gets mad at me when I do that because she's like, I'm not a therapist. You signed a contract acknowledging that I'm not a therapist. Like, all right, Sid, <laughs> you're, you're my therapist. Um, but she's my spiritual director. And, and that has been insanely helpful uh, overall. But yeah, just mostly for me, there was... Um, <clears throat> more trauma has come not so much from uh, theolo- the theological aspects. Like I'm, I'm a, if you know the Enneagram, I'm a seven wing eight. So that challenger part of me um, loves to like, yeah. I'm the person that if someone says, Hey, like when they told me don't read love wins, I was like, okay, well, I'm definitely going to go read that now. <laughs> <laughs> so I have that. So the theology stuff wasn't, wasn't hard. I always, I kind of always ask questions anyway, the trauma more came from uh, the systems within the evangelical church, like overall. Uh, I, I hinted at earlier, but Marty and I both worked in an extremely toxic church uh, that was not helpful, full of narcissism, uh, gaslighting, emotional abuse, spiritual abuse. So that's where my trauma more so comes from. And I've, I've been working through that. Um, and I don't think it's fair to say that's limited only to the evangelical church. Um, that's unfortunately a huge issue throughout Catholic, Protestant, mainstream, whatever. Um, but yeah, so that's that's kind of where I find myself. You know, uh, this traumatized type is no joke. I mean, there are there are people who are in lifetime therapy because of things they experience in evangelical families, schools, and churches. And my and I know that for some, they're never going to set foot in a church again. And I'm not asking them to. I, if, they, if they pick up my book and read it, I hope that maybe it just gives them some hope that, that there, is, there is new life developing on the other side of evangelicalism. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, we have a, a good buddy of our show named Dan Koch. Dan has a podcast called You Have Permission. 
Um, and he's currently uh, in a doctoral program um, in psychology. Specifically, he wants to work with victims of uh, spiritual abuse. Wow. And he's done already some really great work. Uh, he has a series out on his podcast around um, uh, end times anxiety, no. yeah. uh, which is something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's something even for him that, you know, that caused him immense issues. And so now he's helping other people through that. But even that series, it's like a three or four part series he did. Uh, research interviewed all these people and um, that end time stuff uh, can be quite nasty and cause some devastating like super traumatic not great <laughs> things in people's lives so yeah, yeah. man well um, <clears throat> David this has been uh, awesome a really helpful conversation um, I really enjoyed uh, your book and I've enjoyed your work overall. As you can see, I have a, a couple of your books here. Um, I first got introduced to your work through Kingdom Ethics. I picked that up and read it a couple years ago. Uh, so thank you uh, for what you do. I know it's not mm -hmm. always easy uh, putting yourself out there, especially in something like changing our minds or after evangelicalism. Uh, but I really do believe that it's, it's sacred work um, and that it's necessary work. And there are, like you said, a lot of uh, traumatized people, people who have been damaged, people who have been pushed away from Jesus, but not because Jesus did anything wrong, to go back to your yeah. earlier point. So thank you so much for what yeah. you do and thank for you. hanging out with us today. Well, I'm, I'm so encouraged to meet you and to know uh, what you're about. And um, and you're, you're doing holy work. And I'm glad to, to intersect with you guys. And I hope <laughs> it's not the last time, okay? Yeah, yes. absolutely. We would love to have you on again. Let me know when this posts because I want to, you know, promote it everywhere I can. Yeah, most definitely. We'll be we'll be sure to do that. And then also too, just um, real quick, so uh, listeners uh, know where can they find you if they want to interact more with with you yeah. and your work. On Twitter and Facebook, I'm at DP Gushy. Mm -hmm. uh, my name is so un uh, so unusual that there won't be. <laughs> um, sure. And I have a website, davidpgushy.com. Perfect. We'll be sure to link. Uh, those things in our show notes yeah. sweet all right well listeners as always thank you guys so much for tuning in i hope you found this conversation uh helpful i know for a fact if you pick up uh david's book after evangelicalism um it will um if nothing else it'll at least give you some really helpful language for you to understand the things uh that you have gone through um and also it will give you uh, a more beautiful vision of a future hope uh, that you can move into. Uh, some, some better ways to be a Christian, perhaps, if we can use that language. So uh, be sure to check that out. And uh, as always, go Caps. Go Blackhawks and go Flyers. <laughs> even the Flyers for David. Even the Flyers, just for David. Yeah, that, that pains me to say, but even the Flyers. <laughs> well, that's an ecumenical right there. For some absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Unity. We're we're united in our our uh, our our brotherhood in Christ. There we go. <laughs> there we go. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Thank, thank you. you, and listeners. Uh, peace uh, and love, care. guys. Take care. <laughs>